Thank you, Ty, Keely, and Brexton. We are going to continue our series going through the book of now 2 Thessalonians. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, and we'll be there shortly. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for this time in which we can gather as your people and sit under your word. Lord, we thank you so much for not only your word that talks about who you are and how you have saved us and how you've moved history to bring about the salvation we have in your son, but how we can respond to that, how we can live in light of this truth, and how we can live in, in light of the hope of your son returning. So Lord, I just pray for this time as we read your word that you bring it to life in our hearts and our minds that we know you truly and we know how we are called to live in light of that truth. Lord, we love you and so you can pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. A Christian author, A.W. Tozer, uh, wrote this, and I agree with it. The most important thing about us is what we think about God. Because what we think about God is not only going to determine what we think about how we should live in light of him, but it's going to actually determine how we live our whole life. That we think God is a taskmaster that can never be pleased, we become pretty sour people who are never pleased by other people. If we believe that God is just a jolly old guy that just brushes things aside, then we kind of don't think we should live in any particular way, but everything's okay. What we believe about God is important, so important to our life. In fact, what we think about God as humans naturally starts drifting, and we try to actually make God more like us. This is how we're wired, that when we start thinking about God, he is so greater and bigger than we can possibly fathom that's easier to start this thinking of them like a big human. And so we start naturally drifting in what we think, which is why we need to continually go back to the Word. We continually go back to the Scriptures and read it so we can see who He truly is. During the Reformation, there was a, there was a, motto, a motto called Semper Reformanda, which means always reforming. And what they meant was that they knew humans naturally drifted off the truth, and so we should always be going back to Scripture and letting it reform us with the truth of who God is and how we're called to respond. I think this is so pertinent nowadays because if you were going to talk to the average person about this concept of God, most likely they would lean towards this God who's a jolly Santa Claus in the sky. A theologian I admire calls it the celestial Santa Claus, this idea that this is a God that's just always happy with us, and he brushes sin under the rug, there's no consequences, there's no judgment, he doesn't draw any lines, he includes everyone. And it sounds good, but it's not the God of the Bible, I would argue. That when we come to know who the God of the Bible is, he's so much better than a Santa Claus in the sky. He's actually a good judge. He actually desires justice. He actually loves us and brings us rightfully into his family through his son. 
when we think about this jolly idea of Santa Claus in the sky or God, there's no room for him to be a judge. And actually, there's no room for the consequences or the severity of sin itself, which is probably why a lot of people like it. But as we see <clears throat> who God is, and, and when we come to Second Thessalonians and we see him rightfully as the Bible depicts him, we see a better picture. So let's go to Second Thessalonians chapter 1. And we'll start in verse 5. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Says indeed, God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of the, our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What are we supposed to do with a passage like this that actually might rub us the wrong, wrong way? It might actually bring up feelings of fear or trepidation as we read this and talking about God's judgment. Well, I would just focus on this aspect for us who believe. In Christ, we are worthy. Then when we read this passage, we see this great monumental fact that in Christ, we are those who are worthy as he talks about. I can't help it because I'm a child of my age, but when I think about Worthy, I can't help but think of the classic cinema, classic Wayne's World. When they meet famous people, they bow down and say, we're not worthy, we're not worthy. And it's humorous because that's kind of like probably a lot of our responses when we, if we met someone who was famous or one of our heroes. But guess what? They're right. That's actually the human condition. We're not worthy. That actually, when we look at God, we have to bow down and say, we're not worthy, but God. And here comes the glorious gospel. But God loved us in spite of our unworthiness. But God loved us in spite of ourselves. And because of Jesus, who died for us and lived for us, and gives us this new life through the Holy Spirit, we actually are now considered worthy in God's eyes. In Christ, we are worthy. When we look at this passage, we need to remind ourselves of this, because we're first brought up with this great fact about who God is. Talking about, Paul's talking about the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, the fact that God is a righteous judge. He does judge. He has a standard that he has decreed the world should live by, and the world has gone astray. But he does judge. But he's also a good, righteous judge, which is good, because we want that and we need that. 
We have seen too much evidence in the human life of crooked judges where people get off for crimes and justice is not, is not served like it should be to understand that a good judge is truly a good thing. That we actually all, we desired this. We have this innate desire to see justice done because we see it too often in the world where the evildoers get off scot-free and we're wondering what is happening. We long for justice to be carried out. And this is a reassurance that it will be. That the wrongs will be paid for. That rights will be made prevalent. We get this assurance here where it says that God is the righteous judge and he's going to actually repay the afflictors with affliction. And he's going to grant relief to those who are undergoing affliction. He's going to grant relief to his people. That we long and await when this happens. Because this world is broken and we see it too often where we get no relief even though we are faithful and we see those who are not faithful seemingly go up free. But Paul writes here, there will be relief. There will be repayment. We will be comforted when all the wrongs are made right and justice is truly served or delivered. But when will that happen? Paul says this happens when Jesus Christ is revealed. This happens not now, but when Jesus returns and brings to completion the great salvation plan of God. We long and we hope for that day. Which raises the question now, do, when we read this, does this mean that God is not judging right now? And I always say, no, he's not actually bringing about his ultimate final judgment now. He's reserving that for the day when Jesus returns. And so right now, we look at a world where God is actually not judging us. He's disciplining his own people, using life circumstances and what we go through to discipline us, make us more faithful followers. But he's actually just letting those who do not know him reap the consequences of their sin. As we read in Romans 1, we see that he gives them over to their lust. He gives them over to the darkness of their minds. And he guys says, you don't want me. You want to live your own way. Have at it and see what you get. And that's what they are reaping right now presently. But in the meantime, what does that mean? It means as we who are Christians are living a life much like the Thessalonians, when we see evildoers doing okay and faithful Christians undergoing persecutions, and we're wondering what is up, and Paul says, look past these present circumstances and see the glorious that awaits, that he will bring the ultimate perfect judgment upon the whole world. Where the afflictors get their affliction, and we who have been afflicted or we who are faithful are granted relief. That we, he points to the future, says this happens when Jesus returns, and we hope for that. We long for that. It also means that whenever you hear someone talk about some kind of circumstance in this world being God's judgment upon a certain people or upon a certain thing, you can only say, I don't think so. Maybe not. Because the word makes very clear that his judgment is reserved and saved up for the end. 
is reserved for the end of times when Jesus returns. And right now, people are just reaping the consequences of a broken world and a sinful life. And that can actually be enough judgment as it is. As we probably all know if we've countered the consequences of our sin coming home to roost. <clears throat> so we have to deal with this fact that God is a righteous judge and actually is a good thing. And we remind ourselves that in Christ, we are worthy. But this passage also makes it very clear, something that is made clear throughout the whole Bible, is that there are really only two types of human beings on this planet. There's two types of people, two camps, you might say, someone falls into. Paul here would talk about those who are worthy to receive the kingdom and those who are not. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 and 33, says this, When the Son of Man comes into his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. And so we get this sense again. Jesus, not worthy and unworthy, but he uses the language of sheep and goats. He separates people into these two camps. Romans 11.22 would put it like this. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have, not, who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. They're all saying the same thing. Whether it's sheep and goats, worthy and unworthy, Severity or kindness, there's two camps in the world. Those who are in Christ, who know the truth of who Jesus Christ is, and therefore are considered worthy, therefore are sheep because God declares us sheep, therefore receive the goodness and kindness of God. And then there's others who do not know God, they're not worthy of the kingdom, they are the goats, they <clears throat> receive the severity of God. Punishment eternal separation from him. These are the two destinies of all people, everyone who has lived and everyone who will live. And what that means is it urges us to look to Christ. Why? What is the difference? It's whether you're in Christ or not. And so this fact that there's two destinies in this world urges us to look at Christ anew and know who you are in Christ and trust in him. So let's talk first about, as Paul walks through these, those who are worthy, the sheep, those who receive the goodness or kindness of God. Those who are worthy. First of all, as I said, it's, it's those who are in Christ is those who have faith. We know this because he's writing to those people. If you back up what we studied last week in verse 3, he's talking about how uh, they're growing abundantly in faith. He's, these are people who believe in who Jesus Christ is. These are people who trust in who God is. These are people who are even undergoing suffering but still having faith in who God is. Their faith has been proven. These people know who Christ is and they're firm in that. They're in Christ. Meaning that when, they, when Paul talks about him coming again and this judgment is happening, what is their response? We see their response in verse 10. Is that uh, on that day, come, the day uh, when he comes on that day, to be glorified in his saints. 
That those who believe in Jesus, those who are in Christ, when Jesus returns, this is not a fearful event. The glorifying, the fact that the good judge has returned. The glorifying in the fact that he's going to make all the wrongs right. The glorifying and celebrating in the fact that he's going to wipe all of their tears away. And there will no, be no more pain. There will be no more miscarriages of justice. There will be no more angst. For he will bring and usher in his perfect kingdom. And so they glorify Jesus in his return. Not only that, but they marvel at him. They celebrate and rejoice and marvel at how great and good this Savior is. Who came the first time as a helpless babe, but now is returning as a conquering king. And they marvel at this good plan that he put into place to bring his people to salvation. They marvel at who he is. Because they see him truly. They trust in his testimony. They trust in the gospel. Because that's what Paul says at the end of verse 10. He says, because our testimony to you was, be was believed. He's basically saying, when I came preaching to you, Jesus Christ and him crucified, you believed it. You took this as truth and you, you took it in and said, this is the truth that we follow and we believe and we stand on. And because it was believed, these Thessalonians are now in Christ and so their destiny is totally separate from those who don't know Christ. And the same is true for us, that if we believe in who Jesus Christ, if we hear the testimony of the apostles through the word, of the, the gospel de delivered to us through the word, from people preaching this to us, we take it and we believe it. If that's you, if that's us, we too are in Christ. And our destiny is one where we wait with longing and marvel and glory at Jesus when he returns, because we know that means we'll be going home. We will be complete. We'll be as he has destined us to be. And we look at that and believe. And so we know this. In Christ, we are worthy. And when Paul talks about those who are worthy to receive the kingdom, worthy of the kingdom of God, he's talking about us who believe in Jesus. In Christ, we are worthy. But he doesn't shy from talking about those who are not. Those who do not know Christ and their destiny, what awaits them, he outlines very clear. In verse 8, when he's talking about Jesus revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, invicting the vigilance on those who do not know God and those who now obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That those who do not know Christ receive judgment, receive vengeance. But look at why do they receive that? They don't know God. This is not an intellectual knowledge. This is not just like they don't believe there's a God up there. No, they don't personally know God through his word. They do not know God in a salvific way. They don't know him. They are like those who might even have the knowledge that he exists, but they don't, they don't worship him. They don't know him. They don't seek to know him. They turn their backs on him. They're going their own way. They don't know him, and therefore they will not receive his blessings. They will not receive the goodness of his relationship. They don't know God, and they don't obey the gospel. 
I actually really love that phrase because the gospel is the good news about how Jesus saves us in spite of ourselves. The gospel is that great glorious news that Jesus did it all. And if that's true, how do you obey that? I think it's a simple fact that when you obey the gospel means you know who Christ is and you believe. You trust in him. You obey him by trusting in him. And then any obedience that comes with following his, following as his law comes after you have been changed by him. And so he's talking about people who do not know God personally, and he's talking about people who have not, who don't obey the command to have faith in Christ. They don't bow to Christ. They don't acknowledge who he is. And what is their end? Verse 9 makes it clear. He says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day. They will suffer eternal destruction away from God's presence, away from his might. That where we in Christ receive nothing but his goodness, his kindness, his love, his grace, his mercy, them and their rebellion receive nothing but his judgment and his severity. And that is their end. And if for a second, you're kind of glad about some people who don't know Christ receiving that, I would argue don't truly understand who Christ is. For this is a sobering thought. That should make us all take a step back and realize as we stand in Christ, there's so many people in our life who don't, and this is what awaits them. It should motivate us to speak this truth to them with love, with conviction, with urgency, that they know who Christ is and respond to him. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon put it best, I think, when he says this, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exhortations and that no one go unwarned and unprayed for. That this is the truth that happens if we truly believe this is what God does. That in Christ we're saved. We rejoice in that, yes, but it motivates us to look back at our friends, our family members, people who might not believe, and we have to tell them. We have to plead with them. We have to make this clear. Pray for them that the Holy Spirit works in miraculous ways that their hearts can be softened, that their eyes can be opened to the realities of who God is. In Christ, we are worthy and given the task to go back into the dark world to declare the gospel to all who would hear. And so we should let this motivate us. It should motivate us for mission right there. It should motivate us for being evangelistic to the extreme. I'm firmly convinced every single human being is an evangelist. 
You sit in a coffee shop. I, I make a lot of visits in the coffee shops. You can hear people selling stuff all day long. Why? Because they've seen how it changes their life, and they want to sell it. They want people to know. And if we have seen the truth of who Jesus Christ is and how he's done for us, how he's brought us from the kingdom of darkness into his glorious kingdom of light, it should immediately make us people who see and look for opportunities to declare this truth to all who would believe. That we seek to share this truth to people who might even not want to believe, but we have to do it. Because we know the truth of the matter. We let this motivate us. But I love how he talks about how this moves and motivates us in verses um, in verse 11 and 12 when he talks, To this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. I love that because he says, we pray that God's working in you. Paul's not praying, man, I just pray these Thessalonians get their act together and start doing what they're supposed to be doing. No, he says, I pray that God works in your life so that every good resolve, every good work of faith is done. Why? Because he's working in you. The Christian life is not when we grab ourselves by the bootstraps and pull ourselves up. The Christian life is where we fall before our great and glorious Savior, and he works in us to give us a new heart, to give us new energy, to give us a new life where we can serve him and spread his news. And so Paul prays that God is at work so that they can get to work. He prays that we work through his power working in us. That's our only hope, that we are motivated to look for God for our, our help to, so that we can do our good life, a resolve for every good, that we can be faithful in what we do because he's working in us. And what is the result? So that the name of Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, he says, in us. When we seek to live our faith, when we seek to be faithful to what God has called us to do, what is the result? God is glorified. People know his truth, the truth. They know who he is, and they can respond to that as he's working through us. So we look at this fact, this sobering fact, that there is a judgment coming, and we rejoice that we're in Christ. We're motivated to speak the truth to those who don't believe, and then we live out our faith. In Christ, we are worthy. So we make sure of that fact. Be sure. If you today are thinking about this and you're wondering who you are, which camp you are in, if you are part of the worthy, the, the, the uh, sheep, and those who receive kindness, or if you are a goat who is unworthy, who receives severity, and you're wondering if that's me, there's only one way that divides that line, and that's how do you believe or relate to who Jesus Christ is. And so if you wonder, if you, if you have doubts, and I would say, look to Christ. Look again to him who he is. Look at his marvelous and how his mightiness to save. Look to his truthfulness and his, his, his grace-filled life that he pours out on us. Look to him through the word. Get, grab a guy, you, a person you know who can help you walk through what it means to be a Christian, of someone who believes in Christ, and look to him. For that is the factor. It's not how well you can somehow put some, some good veneer on this life. 
It's not how well you can go through the motions. It's not how well you can attend church or read your Bible even. Those are all good things. That's not what brings you into his camp. It's only Jesus Christ. And so look to him. And then when you look to him and you say, I believe, guess what? Be confident. Know that's true. Know that our loving Father, once he gets his arms around you through Jesus Christ, will never let go. He will never abandon you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. You are his. And if he has made you his, trust me, you cannot change his mind. So trust in him. Trust in him and who he has called you through Christ to be. For in Christ we are worthy. And let's live out that life so others can see who Christ is and glory him. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for your word. The truth of the gospel that we can read it, we can know it, we can respond to it. This great truth that you are our amazing God who saves us. That while we were still sinners, you sent your son to die for us. That while we have earned and accumulated wrath because of our sin, you give us forgiveness through Christ. You give us grace. Lord, I pray for everyone here that they can be confident in who Christ is, that they can know that if they believe in Christ, they firmly stand in his camp, that he is for them and not against them, that he gives them kindness and not severity, that he is going to bring, when he returns, that we're going to marvel at him in his gloriousness. I pray for anyone who does not know. I pray for those family members or friends that we know that don't believe. And I pray for us who have relationships with them and the pain that might bring, that we can be motivated to share the truth once again, that we can be motivated to trust you no matter what. I pray for those who don't believe, who might be here or might not be here. I pray for God, for you to be moving in powerful ways in their hearts, softening it to hear the gospel once again, Open their eyes to your truth and your gloriousness so that they can respond in faith. Lord, let us be your people because you have made us your people. Let us realize we are worthy because you have declared we are worthy in Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to stand with us for this.